Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. Today is uh, a nature special. Uh, So any of the questions that you have that you would like to ask uh, about the natural world, we will attempt to deal with that. And by we, obviously, I don't really count myself, though I have I have some knowledge. And due to one of our guests, I have greater knowledge on what to do with the gliss gliss when you find one lying on a path uh, uncertain of what direction to go in. I think it turned out the gliss gliss or edible dormouse, but please don't, uh, was uh, merely concussed and had disappeared by the time I, I returned. So uh, a few things to tell you before we get started. Uh, number one, oh, I'm wearing a hat, right, basically because it's really reached that stage now. The, the queues outside the barbers are still very, very long, so I decided I would wear uh, a hat today and uh, do my impersonation of uh, of Clegg, as uh, as Helen Chersky said from uh, Last of the Summer Wine. Uh, though there was some compost, some Clegg debates. There's been some confusion in terms of the hats of Last of the Summer Wine. That's the kind of issue we may well deal with on the Q&A as well. Uh, a few things. First of all, uh, we do all the shows that we do. Uh, thanks to people who support us via Patreon. Uh, we always make sure things like book shambles and some science Q&A are available to everyone but if you are someone who is able to also support us via Patreon uh, that makes it easier well there's lots of other stuff that we do as well and because we still haven't quite gone back into the live world and I don't think really the return to uh, my normal uh, work is going to happen in the next kind of uh, four or five months if you can support us that also goes to us making things like Tips for Existence which goes out every week where recently we've had on people like uh, Andrean and Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Sarah Parkak and Francesca 
Francesca Stavrokopoulou and Carlo Rivelli. Uh, the one that's currently out now is with uh, Chris Jackson, who any of you listen to him on Monkey Cage will know uh, he was the person who persuaded you, go and chew rocks when you're on a geological field trip. It will really, really help. Uh, there is no way that we can deal with any of your insurance claims uh, for damaged dentistry. And uh, also next week, we've got Adrian Owen on, who is a fantastic, if, if you've, I highly recommend reading his book, uh, Into the Grey Zone. Um, he's a neuroscientist who's done incredible work with patients who have been in vegetative states. So that's on uh, next week. And also uh, towards the end of this week, we have a new episode of Uncanny Hour, and it is about a science fiction classic, which many people have only ever been able to watch once because uh, it upset them so much. And it has uh, an ecological theme. It is the, uh, the science fiction classic, Silent Running. And we've got a documentary about that on Friday. And that's got uh, Mark Kermode and Stuart Lee and Brian Cox and Linda Marrick and Gemma Arrowsmith and Helen Chersky. We've made her watch a film. She doesn't normally watch films. I might even find out a little about that when I first talk to her. And uh, next week is a medical week, by the way, uh, on Sunday Science Q&A. And uh, hopefully we'll be joined by Ben Goldacre. But he is always in a hurry and always, as you know, looking as if he's auditioning for uh, to play a Doctor Who sometime in the late 1970s. And uh, we'll also be joined by Rachel Dunlop. So send in your questions. If you have, we have loads of questions in already. Uh, but if you have any questions, we have a live chat as well. And uh, Trent will find a way of getting to me because the thing I haven't told you Trent, by the way, is that I don't have uh, my phone with me today because someone in my family wanted to go and play Pokemon with their friends. So there we go. We'll work out a way of getting your live questions. Uh, so they're going to be sent to Helen instead. Um, let's go straight. Yeah. So Helen, it is. Uh, what did you think? First of all, before we have your this happened this week uh, history of science section, what did you make of Silent Running? Before I get to that, I will say that if we do have Ben Goldacre on next week, everyone should watch because it's basically twice as much bang for your book because he speaks so quickly that you get it's twice the show in the same amount of time um so silent running i thought it so for anyone who hasn't seen this what can i say about the premise it's like it's a it's, it was 1972 humanity's messed everything up they put the trees into space to save the trees and it's all about whether humanity wants to continue to save the trees and so I thought it was, I mean, of course, there were the two physics things that really bugged me, right? You wouldn't do it out near Saturn. We'll <laughs> deal with, right, we'll deal with Sovereignty as well when we get to the documentary <laughs> next week. I know there were issues there. <laughs> um, but I thought it, it was, I was curious how much it was ahead of its time at the time, because obviously that was pretty much the Apollo program had just come, was just coming to an end. I don't know if it was released just before or after that. It would have been so just after, yeah. Space was this amazing thing and it was technology and it was going to save everything. And so for someone at the same time to look back and go, actually, maybe we're not doing so well with all this, uh, you know, what we're doing to the planet. I'm curious about whether that was um, prescient at the time, because obviously Rachel Carson had published, you know, there's all these, there were starting to be ecological things. So I think it's, uh, so I found it, it was, I mean, it's not, got the most amazing plot in the world I, I'm not I don't know I maybe there are those out there who will disagree but I thought it was really I wanted more historical context so I wish I'd, I'd like watched a 1970 uh, I don't know tomorrow's world or something before I started it so I would know where people were coming from but it was don't very tempt me you know I have access to all these archives <laughs> in some way or other so that's that that's the next thing that's going to be thrown at you well we will find out if Tune in and Uncanny Hour should be out on, on midnight on Friday, as I said. Stuart Lee, Mark Como, Linda Merrick, uh, Brian Cox um, and Gemma Arrowsmith uh, talking about that film. What happened this week in science? 
So this week in science, we're going back to 1967 and uh, Benoit Mandelbrot published a paper called How Long is the Coast of Britain? That's the easy part of the title. Um, and the rest of the title is Statistical Self-Similarity and Fractal Dimension. And so Mandelbrot might be familiar to people as the guy who he coined the word fractal. This paper is actually before he coined it. But what he is talking about, so I've, I've got uh, an example on my phone here so what he was talking where can i hold it so you can see it there yeah you. yeah that can so see that. he was talking about how you measure the coast of britain so you can see in this example we've measured the coast of britain with a stick which is quite long so you can go around and you can measure how many sticks it takes to go all the way around is that that's the other stick hang on oh no oh it's all gone wrong now that was not helpful that's uh, great do you know what this is very similar to a moment in alan partridge's uh, this time so that is obviously what i'm aiming for at all times so this is the coast of britain me measured with a shorter stick and so it's the same country but it's uh, until you know think until the politics changes it um but the, the length is longer and so and, and what mandelbrot was doing so he was a, a mathematician who had access to early computers and so he he made these very beautiful figures and he basically said that roughness there are types of roughness which however small you go they still stay rough so if you zoom in and zoom in they're still rough and you zoom in on the rough bits and then they've got little rough bits and you zoom in on those and it's still got little rough bits and um so the, the importance of this paper was that he started thinking about fractals as things that happen in nature, which is why I picked it for this week. So it's not that it's not just a mathematical, um, you know, an equation you can come up with and you can invent a fractal dimension for a mathematical object. It's actually seen in real life and coastlines were his example of why this works. And this was like his work kind of went on for several years. It only really hit the mainstream in 1982. He published a book that I've just forgotten the name of called The Fractal Geometry of Nature. And that was when it really hit the mainstream in 1982. And, but he'd been working on this idea for sort of 15 years of, on the mathematics of it and this idea that nature, I mean, the way I think of it is, is it keeps being beautiful however far down you go. And so that it was a big idea in mathematics and he he 10, but he was recognised when he died as one of the, you know, the, the, the mathematicians who contributed most to our view of the world. So, yeah, 1967 that was. And uh, if you'd like to go measuring the coastline of Britain, the rule is you well, the, the point the, the thing you have to do is decide how big your ruler is going to be, uh, because that's that's the thing that will determine what your answer is. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Helen. Now we're going to go to another Helen, Helen Scales, whose latest book is uh, The Brilliant Abyss. Um, Helen, how Helen, are you? How are you? I'm very well. Oh, very well. You, Robin. Thank you, Robin. How are you? I'm good. I, I wanted to. Now you've got uh, some beautiful pictures behind you, by the way. That's, they uh, are nice, aren't they? Yes. The fish who, is good. Who did uh, the fish? Who's that? Uh, uh, it's an Australian artist. Uh, it was actually for a campaign on the, the, the Ningaloo Reef on the West Coast to stop it from having a massive marina being built. And then artists uh, produced these prints to raise some money for a campaign that was successful. And they did not build the enormous, ugly marina and they left that beautiful reef more intact. So that and your cover for this book is fantastic because it has that great element. As we found with you know, Octonauts, which I think is one of the best programs that has ever been made, the way that, and, and as your books do as well, they introduce us to a world which undersea almost seems mythological. Uh, it, oh, that, yeah. that, that, it, there are times where you know it's so beautifully fantastical and yet it is reality and I think you, that that cover of the book really kind of conveys that as well. Oh it's lovely, oh, it's lovely isn't it it's the artwork of the artist um, Aaron John Gregory he's a Californian he's done, he's done my last three co covers actually um, and I always kind of yeah each time they get more complicated I sent him longer and longer lists of things I'd like to depict on the front and uh, and he always just 
goes with it and is incredibly uh, just brilliant at translating all these ideas. Yeah, it's great fun. The colors and the, the creatures. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to make stuff up. You just need to look in the deep sea for like weird and really weird and wonderful stuff. You just um, just have to look in the deep. Someone tweeted me today, they're reading the book and they're like, you know, if I didn't know Helen Scales and how scientific she is, I'd think she made this up. And the pig's butt worm, what? You know, this thing that just does look like a pig's bum that floats around uh, in the deep sea and for good reason too, being that shape and being full of jelly. I'm going to show, see if I can show you a picture of this. That guy over there. Yeah. Uh, that one. Um, you know, uh, it, me, it, it works. There are reasons why it makes sense for things to be the way they are in the deep sea. Um, and it is very wonderful. Well, it's very much one who is uh, trying to design an extraterrestrial. You know, you, you need to go deep down and you will find those things which have, you know, the elements of H.R. Geiger and beyond. Now, what is your show and tell today? Today, uh, Right. So I have got this. Uh, I'm not going to ask for any um, guesses as to what it is because it doesn't look like much, but it is pretty cool. This is um, the fossilized ear bone of a, uh, a, a pygmy sperm whale, Kodiopsis. It lived about 15 million years ago. Um, and uh, the equivalent bone that we have in our, our heads, uh, in our ears, is about the size of a marble. Um, and for a whale, it's really significant that they're big and massive and, and really solid bones. I mean, this is a fossil, but even when it was before it was fossilized, it's still massive and big. And it helps them to hear underwater. So it's one of the key adaptations that whales, 50 million years ago, um, those uh, land living mammals went, you know what, let's go back to where we came from and go back to where the fish uh, began all of this. Um, but they had a whole bunch of things they needed to be able to do that on land it wasn't necessary. So, you know, if you jump in the swimming pool, you can't hear very well because your inner ears, uh, your, your ear tubes get full of water and that sort of damps down the conduction of sound waves. So um, whales evolved a different way of doing it. They have massive bones. So the sound is basically conducted along this bone, uh, along their jaw bones, through their skulls, through this massive bone into their inner ears. And that's how they hear. But it was like a key, a key part in their evolution. Um, and this is a, a sperm whale. Um, uh, and they're, they're about the size of dolphins, apparently. I mean, there's still a few, pig there's two species of pygmy sperm whale now, and they're quite little and cute. Um, but uh, the big ones do uh, fish in the deep sea. And I write about it, that in the book about how um, how sperm whales hunt for like an hour at a time at 1,000, 2,000 metres down for giant squid. I mean, how cool is that? Super, super cool stuff. That's right. Can we just have another look at that a little bit close to the camera? Just so, so give that. So it's a little bit broken. I'm trying to figure out if I can point in the right direction. It's Brilliant. Sort of yes. shaped. And if you can make out, it has basically got a really thick edge to it. Uh, and, you know, and this is the kind of the solid, um, the solid nature of it really is the key. And I mean, this is what, especially any of the whales that live today that have really acoustic lives. So sperm whales, particularly, they make sound to basically they hunt with sound like bats. So for them, echolocation is super important for the way they can hunt around in the deep sea so they need to be able to hear those sounds that they make themselves bouncing back off things so they can figure out what's there um and and a, and a really big solid ear bone is going to do it for them so yeah pretty cool that and is it, I wonderful. Say it was found this um this was given to me by a friend who found it in a river in the united states in the eastern united states there are places basically where all these fossils get washed out um into these black thick muddy rivers and he goes diving he can't see anything he's kind of groping around there's crocodiles and alligators and things probably alligators um and, uh, and he just sort of scoops stuff up from the seabed and picks out like um, shark's teeth and whale bone ear whale ear bones and things like that and he gave me one of his spare ones brilliant what a wonderful thing to have a spare
Um, our next guest is someone who gave me actually one of my favourite. I interviewed him for the for the book, which I'm finally finishing today. I'm doing the final copy edit today. And uh, and when I interviewed Hugh, he told me it's actually a quotation from an ornithologist friend of his, which I'm probably going to get slightly wrong. Uh, but it is scientists do themselves a great disservice should they dismiss the unquantifiable. It's approximately that I think. Um, Hugh Warwick is uh, amongst other things. He's many other things apart from hedgehog. Apart from hedgehog but we he does his hedgehog work is fantastic, and he told me a great story as well of his his first true friendship with a hedgehog as well uh when he was bathing once a week in a farmhouse um hugh what was that that i did i get that quote approximately right didn't i from yeah, your ornith ornithology and it's, it's, it's that idea we, we were actually talking about love um and I, I was writing a book about people's relationships with nature and, and whether any of the experts i was talking to would slip across that sort of dubious line between liking and loving the natural world and um and it's Andrew Lack. Uh, he's, he's, he's a botanist as well. His, his dad was the famous ornithologist. His dad was the one who did all the work with Swifts in the um, uh, Natural History Museum in Oxford. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he was talking about that. Yeah, and uh, scientists do themselves a disservice if they ignore the importance of the unquantifiable, I think is really crucial because I think it stops you becoming too arrogant. Um, so I, I treasure that bit. And out as well. I don't have my copy is still at my dad's. He, he, he uh, loves uh, that book. It's the Hedgehog book by Graf so Hedge. I'm is, sure this you is, have one. Well, this is this is particularly pertinent um, uh, because uh, today sees the start of um, Hedgehog Awareness Week, which is I have lots of friends say, well, so what are you going to be doing for Hedgehog Awareness Week? And I say, well, basically the same as what I do for the other 51 weeks of the year. Um, so. So, yes, I've done uh, pre-recorded for this morning and, and I shall be cavorting with um, who am I doing? One show tomorrow. And, and it's just the, but it's just like the usual thing, but just a bit more of. So I shall be doing hedgehog awareness and uh, um, alerting people to the demise and the delight and, and the, the definite opportunities for fun and games with hedgehogs. I was not sharing a bath uh, with the hedgehoggers. You, you were talking about my night. No, no, I said it was during the time that you were having yeah. a bath once a week in a farmhouse, not with the hedgehog, yeah. the audience's imagination to create yeah. this level of hedgehog erotica. Yeah, and, and it was, thank you. And hedgehog, and hedgehog erotica, oh God, don't even get me started on that. Did you, just use Google carefully. Okay, we'll move on. Yeah, yeah, we won't talk about your next book, but it's about the natural world. But there's, there's, it's, it's been problematic in terms of the algorithms involved. Um, so, what is your show and tell? Um, so, I have. You see, if I'd known what Helen was going to be bringing, then I'd have probably chosen something different. Um, but, but mine trumps it on age, um, and also trumps it on the fact that that I found it. Um, but this is probably one of the most regularly found of these things. There we go, lovely ammonite, about 195 million years ago. Uh, this died um and i was one of my favorite pastimes uh, apart from wandering around hedgerows looking for hedgehogs is is wandering along the beaches down near lyme regis this is actually charmouth beach and um and just waiting and watching and looking and trying to see those moments of pattern when you get that little ripple which might be a footprint but actually might also be a fossil and I, there are people down there with their goggles and their hammers smashing stuff but I walk and just watch and look, and it is one of the most amazingly meditative things. And this particular fossil, um, um, I'd had one of those nights, young children at the time, staying with my mother-in-law, uh, who lives down that way. And I had been up for most of the night, and I was really hating everybody. And I checked the time for the tides. The tide was just going out. And at dawn, I just went down to the, uh, to the coast and walked along the beach. All of the professional fossil hunters ahead of me. And, um, and they'd walk straight past this one. And I, I, this, this is just one of the best. It's, it was initially very piratized. And I had a, had a decision to make. Either I could preserve it properly and not touch it. 
um, and preserve all of the iron pyrites, the sort of gold color on it. Um, or I could leave it to oxidize and fade away, but actually share it with people and they can touch it. So anyway, I think it's just magical. It makes me very happy. Yeah, it's a wonderful uh, go. Now, we have an enormous number of questions. I'll also mention, by the way, I said at the beginning, uh, we've got a bunch of shows out. Our latest book shambles is with Tom Allen uh, about his book uh, about growing up in Bromley and, and what it was like to be a, a child feeling slightly on the outside. So it's a lovely book, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, so that's another thing that's on Cosmic Shambles at the moment, Tom Allen with Josie Long and me. Let's start with a question from Maria, who is seven years old. Hello, Maria. Uh, uh, Maria would like to know, how do dolphins and whales hold their breath for so long? Helen S, because I've realised we have to denote which Helen on this occasion. On this occasion, uh, dolphins and whales hold their breath. Well, certainly, I can. I want to tell you. I want to go back to um, sperm whales again, but actually, because they hold their breath for like an hour or more, dolphins for slightly less. One thing they all have is um, a type of um, protein in their blood which holds onto oxygen much, uh, and it's actually in their muscles as well. So we have uh, hemoglobin in our blood. Um, which is uh, basically what, what holds onto the oxygen in our lungs and then puts it into our tissues and the other parts of our body. But um, uh, these uh, dolphins and whales also have something called myoglobin, which it holds onto a lot more oxygen. And in fact, they have absolutely masses of this stuff in their muscles, um, like 10 times as much, um, to the point where technically it should actually make them kind of solid and they should be able to move. Their muscles should actually become these kind of solid lumps. Um, but what uh, some scientists found out is that they have this slightly different version of this molecule, which is slightly uh, repellent. So it's like a kind of non-stick version of uh, myoglobin so that they can stay nice and supple and swim around in the ocean still with loads and loads of this oxygen holding uh, compound in their muscles. So that it's not just... Um, you know, it's not just the oxygen in their lungs they're using to hold their breath and keep down for that long. It's also in the rest of their body. So I think some, for a sperm whale, I think, I mean, their lungs collapse very quickly as they dive down because of the pressure. And they're completely reliant on this massive store of oxygen in the rest of their body. Um, and uh, and so, you know, they can go down for absolutely ages. So they have, yeah, lots of different adaptations. One thing I would love to know, though, and I don't know if we ever will, is how do they feel when they need to breathe? Because obviously, you know, for us uh, air breathing land mammals, we can, you know, recognize that feeling of, OK, I've swam down. I need I'm holding my breath for like a minute and I need to come back up and you feel a bit panicky. I'd love to know what a whale feels when it gets to that point, whether there's just some kind of chemical cue and they're like, OK, time to come back up. Everything's fine. Just get back to the surface um, and breathe again. And like sperm whales actually spend like three quarters of their lives in the deep. They come back up. It takes them about eight minutes to exchange the oxygen again into their into their muscles and into their bodies and back down they go and they just keep diving. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I know it's difficult to talk about. You know, Thomas Nagel wrote about what is it to be a bat and what is it to be a whale uh, on another side. But of, because that's its natural existence, whereas of course us diving in the in water is an, is an unnatural existence. Yeah, it's intriguing, isn't it, to get mm. some sense of of what that consciousness would be, especially of such an intelligent uh, other animal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I would love that. I would love that to to be able to kind of climb further into the minds of whales and and sperm whales and you know these wonderful intelligent creatures. Maybe one day we will. Who knows terrible things we might find out they're not thinking these beautiful things we imagined now uh i can answer the next question but only because hedgehog awareness week asked me to film a small piece about it i was given the information but he will know this off the top of his head matt would like to know how do i make a hedgehog friendly area in my garden go on robin go on you do it you do well, it well it's if you can just what you want to do kind of a reasonably unruly log pile uh which will work for shelter and also attract bugs which will mean it'd be good for food but do put out clean water as well 
brilliant. I can actually probably retire now. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think that's the first time he's answered a question. I never did. i for over a year and it might. A man has got to be aware of his limitations. That was taught to me by the film Dirty Harry and uh, it didn't make me take up guns, but it did no, make me realise my limitations. I think we should give you a round of applause for answering because I mean, because we're, we're all learning, right? And, and you know, we, so I, I think it's great that you, you also have taken your turn at answering a question. Great. <laughs> That's it for this year again in 2022 when I might answer something else about caterpillars. Um, I will. I will add a little bit more, uh, and it's, it's the easy bit, which is, which is just to do less gardening. Um, I mean, it's the cult of tidiness, which, which is at the heart of, of of the loss of so much of uh, the natural world. And so you just basically leave a bit to go wild. And uh, when we did, we took the Hedgehog Street campaign, took a um, a display garden to the Royal Horticultural Show um, at, uh, at at some place in in London, and it was it was the first time ever people had turned up to that thing and planted brambles. Um, you know, it was like this is what we're doing. We want to show you can do these things still have a beautiful looking garden but just share rather than 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 persecute everything around you and and um the actually probably the top thing matt can do though is because if he's asking this question he's probably already quite tuned in probably already quite sensitive to it it's talk to your neighbors because if you're going to be doing nice things that's great but if then your neighbour has decided to to build a carport in the front and put plastic grass in the back and and glyphosate everything else with an inch of its life. Then um, then yeah, it, it creates an environment which is very very uh, uh, um, degraded for for everything to be able to share. So yeah, maybe communication is almost as important as the um, act itself. Wonderful. Some of the churchyards and cemeteries are absolutely perfect. There's a one near me which has got it's got a bug bug hotel at the back, you know, where it gets most unruly. But they've they've allowed it to just grow, and it still looks beautiful. And it's still well, it's a different story. All I think the the manicured cemetery. I always find a very strange thing when I think actually seeing life growing from it is a far more uh, joyous thing than a well kept lawn. But it's slightly complicated. The cemetery thing. There's a village just north of Oxford called Kirtlington, where I've done a lot of work. They've done amazing things with the, the, the stone walls and making little smoots in them for all the hedgehogs to be able to move through the gardens. But with the cemetery, they, they've also done the bug thing there too. Uh, but they actually put signs up. So because for, for about two or three weeks each year, it looks really, really awful when it's just everything's dying and they want the seed heads to uh, develop and then shed the seeds. And so they do need to put messages up because people do complain. People will do stupid things and you know, go in there and try and tidy it up. Um, uh, but, yeah, we just need to, to educate and it'll, it, it'll help in the end. Well, Brilliant. Can, I, can I ask a quick question while we're on, while we're on hedgehogs and cemeteries? Because I have got something, a burning question I wanted to ask you. Um, last year, I have a cemetery across the road from me, and it's it is very lovely, and it's there's lots of wildlife, and it is sort of left. I don't know if they have bug hotels and things, but it is it does feel <laughs> a wild space in Cambridge. Um, and anyway, uh, last year I was going for a walk, and it was the middle of the afternoon, and there was a hedgehog um, eating a pile of um, like looked like kind of veggie clippings that someone had stuck over the back of their wall, and it was climbing around. A few of us stopped and watched, and I was really kind of worried, like should it be out at that time of day? On the dogs out in daytime, it's poorly. Um, and so it, it, they're nocturnal uh, as a species. It actually, the reason why people think that hedgehogs are covered in fleas um, is because the hedgehog you're most likely to see is a hedgehog out in daytime. And if the hedgehog's out in daytime, it's more likely to be covered in parasites and um, infested with parasites inside as well. And therefore, the hedgehog you most like to see, because it's simply easier to see them in the daytime, is the one which is poorly. Um, but yeah, on the whole, they're ill if they're out in the daytime. Uh, and it, they're probably not eating the clippings, but there'll be insects in and amongst the clippings, which will be there, because they, they are they're carnivorous. Uh, and they used to be, oh, God, taxonomists. You'd have thought the taxonomists would go, 
we've done this bit. We'll move on and do something else. But no, they've done this bit. They made hedgehogs take insectivores. That's simple. And then, then it's, actually, you know what? Insectivores not right anymore. We're going to call it something else. Uh, it took me three days to work out how you have to say Eulipatiflin. Um, that's what they are now. Eulipatiflin. What does that tell us? Insectivore, obvious. They eat insects. Eulipatiflin means truly fat and blind, which I think is really quite uncharitable. Un 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 um, oh, of all the creatures you could, you could call that, I would top of the list. Yeah, well, also, it's not actually actually a reference to the obvious morphology. It's to do with their cecum um, um, and to do it's, it's a blind ended. Yeah, it's 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 complicated. Not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, now, in the tradition of Sunday brunch, we move on to uh, the recipe section. Now, I missed your tweets this morning, Helen, because I was engaged in talking about some rather parlous piece of BBC journalism. But uh, someone says they would like to know more about your favourite algae recipes. So can you tell us, first of all, what this tweet was and now tell us about what these recipes might be? You know, occasionally you wake up in the morning and you're ever so slightly grumpy and you spot something and then you get a bit grumpy and then you have to say something about it. And one of my bees in my bonnet, one of the, like, I don't know what I was looking at this morning, but an advert flashed up, which kind of said, said get your healthy fish oils and get your omega-3s and you must eat enough fish. And I was like, ah! so I tweeted. And what I tweeted basically said, it is not true that you need to eat fish to get enough omega-3 to be healthy because the fish do not make the omega-3s. The fish eat something else which makes the omega-3s. So we could just eat the something else and the something else is algae. Um, and the big fish eat the little fish so that the omega-3s just pass down. By the time they get to us, if if you have a if you had a big fish, for example, if you got your omega threes from I don't know tuna or something, it's been through quite a lot. Of, I mean, it's quite impressive. Those molecules have been through a lot of animals on their way to get to you. However, you could just eat the thing at the bottom of the food chain, which is the algae and um, seaweed are algae. So there are various things. So spirulina, which people I think put in smoothies and you know health things, that is a form of algae. I, it's a sort of bright green thing that I don't put in smoothies. But you know, it's it's not just the uh, microscopic algae there, there are the macro algae which are the seaweeds and um i was actually i i thought i should probably look up how much um omega-3 uh fatty acids are produced by different types of algae and i didn't have time to do that this morning before i started ranting um but when it comes to seaweed actually there's i mean in the uk the easiest example is probably lava bread which is a welsh traditional um uh food and there's actually so actually the british are unusual so there's and there's in around essex there's um some I can't remember what they call it. They do. I have a whole. I do actually. I, I tell you what. I'll, I have got a whole book on on seaweed food. Um, but so so it's actually we are unusual in not having seaweed in our food culture because actually most other places seaweed. It's not uncommon. It's us that they are the exceptions. So um, when I eat seaweed, it tends to be sort of the sprinkled on top variety. But I I have been looking for a seafood recipe book, so I haven't got recommendations yet, but I will soon. And I'm gonna have a quick nose around to see if I can find my seaweed there's a book written by someone whose name I've forgotten um but she's in London and it's got all about seaweed I'll show you the cover I'll go and have a look for it in a second but yeah so but basically lava bread is a good start and brilliant Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll do it well, ne next week. Maybe you could maybe we can have something. I'll, I'll make something. You make something. Let's see if we, we can uh, we can bring the recipes there. That'll get us on to daytime full time. It'll be great. Um, this is a question from Neil. Helen, you've probably been asked this quite a few times and it came up a couple of weeks ago. I've still not seen this film. I was kind of advised just not to bother. I reckon you know which documentary I'm going to talk about, uh, which is uh, Sea Spiracy. And uh, first of all, have, have you seen it? Secondly, what was your opinion? Because I know there's been a, a lot of kind of uh, debate and questioning from the uh, evidence-based science areas. Yes, I'm sure. Yes, 
I'm sure the other Helen has watched this too, but I'm going to jump in. Um, yes, Seaspiracy. I mean, if I watched it, yes. I um, I can see why a lot of people are upset with it. Um, it simplifies things enormously. Um, it's uh, it sidesteps a lot of important issues. But I think, but it does get some things right as well. So I think I'm I'm kind of torn about it. And I think time will tell whether in the long run it's going to do more harm than good in terms of raising awareness over the big issues. You can watch that film and you'll come away knowing that there are big problems in the oceans, which are industrial overfishing and harmful subsidies and at sea slavery and bycatch and pollution and those things are all absolutely true there's no doubt that that, that those things are, are big issues and we need to do something about them the way the film portrays it is that overfishing is the single thing that is the worst thing uh, about the way we're impacting the oceans and the single thing that all of us can do to therefore uh, solve that problem is to stop eating fish. Now that I think is the oversimplistic part of it and I think what's really important and actually if you do want to know more we did make um, an episode of a podcast I um, present called Catch Our Drift and we looked into kind of the truths and the sort of misleading parts of the film and we looked into more detail on the issue of yeah can you can you sustainably fish the sea because the film kind of leads to the conclusion that that's impossible and there are big hurdles to it and obviously things like managing fisheries in the high seas a long way from shore is a big challenge but it doesn't mean it can't be done and so we actually spoke to um, other people who are looking at really kind of small scale sustainable fishing we spoke to some amazing people in South Africa who are kind of connecting um, really small kind of artisanal fisher 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 people with the customers directly and with restaurants and with um, consumers so that they can be sure that the food they're getting is good, that they're paying a good price for the people who are catching it. We spoke to this incredible fisherman who was saying how his life was transformed by being able to basically sell his catches directly rather than to some middleman who's going to, you know, give him crappy money and, and he wasn't going to make anything out of it. So, you know, there are some really inspiring transformational stories about how you can we can sustainably use the oceans. Um, which I think is a bit more nuanced and, and, and important to look at as opposed to the film is sort of saying we just have to step back and say we're not going to eat anything, take anything from the oceans at all, which I think is just it's not going to work for one. There's far too many people in the world who absolutely rely on the oceans. Um, uh, but there's smart ways we can do it. And actually, I want to say it kind of chimes in with what Helen was just saying about seaweed and omega-3s. And um, and one thing about seaweed um, is that you can farm it and it's actually kind of a net benefit to the ocean. It takes up carbon, it takes up nutrients. So seaweed farming is one of those things we definitely need to do more of. And here in Britain, we definitely can do it. And people are. I know friends of ours, uh, mine are running a seaweed farm up in the north and people are doing it more. Um, but what we need is to get it into our diets. You know, we need to eat more basically kind of vegetarian sushi and stuff like that. We need to use these um, seaweed products in our diets here. Um, because otherwise we're getting omega-3s from things like krill that are fished in the Antarctic, which is such a terrible idea. I mean, this is penguin food and whale food is being industrially hoovered out of the Antarctic waters to make things like omega-3 supplements. We definitely don't need to be doing that. We should be eating seaweed. So, you know, there are ways we can we can use the oceans in a much more sustainable way. And I think that's what that film was kind of missing the point on a bit as well, which was the good things that we can and we are doing in terms of, you know, sustainably supporting people and their livelihoods from the Something very quick about that, because I think I think actually my I, the, the, one of my bigger problems with. So I, I didn't watch the film because I didn't want to give Netflix the click, because what bothers me about it is that what they wanted is the click. 
If you put something out that's super controversial, people click on it, they argue over it, and then they will make another one that oversimplifies the argument. So I think the bigger problem with Seaspiracy is actually the tribal nature of it. It's deliberately pitting people against each other. So it's a great big fight purely for attention. And that's more dangerous than anything that's actually in the film, I think. And there's a lot of stuff in the film that, by all accounts, is really... Yeah, just damaging because it's simplistic. So it's the style of the film that I don't want to encourage because if we go down that route, I mean, everything's stuffed, right? We have to appreciate nuance. So that was that's the bigger problem with the film, I think. You've got a big battle on your hand, Helen. I think we all have in terms of that. The, and I totally agree. Yes, the, uh, the demand for nuance. Uh, and uh, this question from Andrew, uh, I think this has come back because something his sons have been saying to him, but uh, he wants to check with you, Hugh, that uh, hedgehogs as pets is a terrible idea. I mean, it really depends. I mean, of course, it, we, we need to have nuance on all of these things. Uh, yeah, you can have something which uh, uh, appears to be a really, really bad idea. We can have subtlety and nuance about it. Um, if you live in a country which doesn't have a native population of hedgehogs and you're willing to take on board a nocturnal animal as a pet, which likes to run a great deal at night on a wheel. Um, and, and as it's running, um, um, because the hedgehog has cover coat of spines, it will go and defecate, doesn't need to go and hide to defecate, it'll just poo as it runs. So what it does is poos in the wheel as it's running. And so what then happens is it gets sprinkled in this sort of fecal matter, which then drops between the spines. And then it's required to be cleaned with a toothbrush. Um, if you want that sort of a pet then then you, know, you should consider it uh, but the problem i mean obviously it's ridiculous the problem in this country and in the uk is that we've got our own native hedgehogs and as whenever you get an exotic pet dealer coming along and saying um oh we've just got these uh, very very cute pygmy hedgehogs as they're known as uh, there's different african species of hedgehog which have been uh, um, bred specifically uh, um, and people start trying to sell our native hedgehogs they get bored of their pet hedgehogs they release them into the wild they die the habit has sprung from the exotic pet keepers in america where the the uh, these hedgehogs became an absolutely must-have fad pet for quite some time and having then gone to the international hedgehog olympic games and the rocky mountain hedgehog show and spent a great deal of time recognizing that i was the most normal person in the room i, I heartily argue against the idea uh, of, of having pet hedgehogs over here. I mean, it's it's exotic pets and exotic pets work. Uh, well, you need to, to understand exotic pets. You just follow the money. Who's making money out of it? They're breeding these animals. They're going to try and sell them to profit. That's why these things work. Uh, yeah. Um, so thank you. Don't. Um, it would be the thing to say there. And uh, uh, but there's yeah, I'm sure there are many others out there who'd have a, a sort of a, a view on exotic pets, but I find it, yeah, we've got our pets, they've been domesticated, wild animals, don't cage them. Thank you very much. You're watching Sunday Science Q&A. Uh, I should just mention, as I, I mentioned before, the latest Uncanny Hour is uh, all about I Am Legend and also on Cosmic Shambles. You can hear tips for existence. Our uh, most recent guest from last week is uh, is Chris Jackson, who uh, was one of the Christmas lecturers this uh, year or just at the end of last year. And one of the other Christmas lecturers was Helen Chersky, who's now going to answer a question about bubbles. Uh, this is from Adela, who's aged eight. Hello, Adela. And uh, she would like to know, could bubbles found in stones near a fossil contain gas which could be analysed in the lab? Um, not a fossil bone. So the thing about bubbles, there's this very nice idea, right, that if you 
trap things under stuff and you can keep it all trapped, trapped then you should be able to come back a thousand or a million years later and the same stuff should be in there um, and it sometimes works in ice for example so ice when snow falls in Antarctica and it gets compacted and compacted you do get little pockets of gas that you can't that do actually stay stopped you know shut away in the solid and you can go back to them for a long time afterwards and, and look at them and that that's actually the best way of finding ancient atmospheres. The problem is it, when you go back to fossils, there's two problems with the fossils. One is that in order for there to be a fossilization process, you need some, there's, there's chemistry going on. There's an exchange of chemistry uh, of, of molecules coming and going. And that means that they'll be exchanging with whatever's in your little gas pocket. So it's not, it's a porous boundary. Um, molecules are coming and going. So what's in there is highly likely to change. And the other thing is that over the timescales needed for the sort of fossils, uh, like the one Hugh was showing, you know, you're talking 100 million years 200 million years all that has to happen in your tiny pocket is that just a few times in those 100 million years an oxygen molecule has to go one way or a carbon dioxide molecule has to sneak off into the rock and the chances after such a long period of everything being intact in your bubble are really small so if, if you could get there right afterwards like a volcano for example and it's you know the lava uh, solidifies and you get your bubble that's probably not going to change very much. But in the in the, the sort of sediments where you get fossils, there will be an exchange um, with the surroundings. And so uh, although you can do it with ice, I don't think you can do it with fossils. Thank you, Helen. Fossils. A question for you, Hugh, from Shirley. Shirley was, says, uh, just say, no, I'm not opposed to the idea, but I'm curious. What are the advantages of reintroducing beavers to areas of the UK? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's perfectly timed as I have just finished the text uh, for the the Beaver Book. This is the Hedgehog Book, of course, but the Beaver Book will come out in um, October, all being well. I just now need to very carefully do the picture research. Um, but the advantage, the thing about the beaver is that they're ecosystem engineers. They were wiped out, uh, functionally extinct about 400 years ago, but there's some evidence that they were still around two or 300 years ago in the UK. Um, when you reintroduce beavers into a landscape, uh, they're famously, they chop down trees. They chop down trees to build uh, dams. They build dams to uh, create security for themselves. Uh, they build a lodge in the dam and where they can raise their young. But they also build dams to get a pond created so they can store food in the cold water. It, they, they invented refrigeration long before uh, we did. And their food is just the bark of trees and the leaves of trees. So they dig those down into the ground so they can come and get them when the leaves aren't on the trees. But in the process of doing this, they are unhomogenizing our landscape. They're, they're, they're creating difference. They are um, increasing the roughness, the fractals, I presume, of this sort of area. Uh, and so the whole thing becomes a much more diverse ecosystem. And so what you will end up with, and, and so some good friends of mine up in Scotland, uh, in um, Ailith, up in uh, Perthshire, uh, they have released beavers onto their estate. And I went up there and it's to see what happens. To begin with, it can look a bit messy. But within a couple of years, very quickly, the whole thing begins to become um, just a, a, an absolute magnet for, for invertebrates, for, for amphibians, for reptiles um, and for the bird life, which then comes to feed on these things and for the mammals that feed on these things, too. They are an absolute cornerstone species. They transform a landscape. Uh, they create it. I mean, they, they don't just build the dams and make the lakes. They, they dig out. Can canals which they will use to be able to drag bigger bits of wood down to their main ponds uh, so if we've got some space they can transform the landscape really well there's been some really interesting work done looking at the impact of the beavers being released down on the river otter 
which is really kind of mixed up anyway. And down in, in Devon and Somerset, there are beavers now down there. Uh, the River Otter Project shows that you get a massive benefit from having the beavers present for wildlife. But you also get massive benefits because the beaver dams uh, uh, slow the progress of water. When you have a flood event, potentially heavy downpours of rain, water travels down the rivers more slowly. And this means that you actually reduce flooding. And there's work done, I think it was in Bavaria, and actually was costing it and showing how much people had saved in money by having beavers in the landscape because they had impounded water, making it trickle back down through the landscape more slowly. So, yeah, they are an ecological wonder. And uh, and uh, I'm... Uh, yeah, I think they're a marvel. I really, really look forward to more projects like this. There's a talk of them being released onto the Isle of Wight. They've been released in Sussex, I think, on the, the Downs. Um, and obviously the Scottish beavers. I, I, they're going to be all over the place and good. Excellent. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, Helen S, question for you from Nikki. Uh, how come when coral reefs die out, they aren't able to grow back like forms of vegetation? Well, corals are not plants. They are not plants they well they're partly plant but they're mainly animal um can i get you i'm gonna just go and get you some coral actually hang on hang on this wasn't planned but i've got so i happen to have a piece of course everyone we have on they happen oh. to have a fossil somewhere a piece of coral somewhere <laughs> else you know eardrums of all manner of animals yeah. this was left over from a project i did years ago uh, on the illegal uh, trade in ornamental corals and i was studying London Zoo basically had this like massive consignment that came over from the Philippines and was seized because it didn't have the correct permits. Um, and I was studying what uh, they had and um, I might have possibly not put back a few of them. I will eventually. Anyway, um, so corals are animals. They are um, uh, relatives of sea anemones um, and distantly to jellyfish. Um, and they build these amazing structures out of calcium carbonate, out of chalk, essentially. They do have tiny algae living inside them, which help them to grow. Um, but they do need that kind of symbiosis between animals and uh, and plants to grow. So if you can see nice and close, you've got these little nubbins and each one of those would have been an individual coral in this um, beautiful colony uh, from the Philippines. So, um, so corals, yeah, I mean, they can regrow and they do. I mean, that's the kind of the hopeful message I think that we can take from things like hearing about how the Great Barrier Reef is in trouble in Australia, various other places too get hit by um, warming seas and they undergo a process called coral bleaching where those algae living inside the corals um, get cross and basically leave or the corals get a bit cross and spit them out and they turn white. So they would look a bit like this, um, a dead coral that's left uh, afterwards after everything's died. Um, but we do know, I mean, in that case, we do know, for example, that some corals can be more tolerant to bleaching. Some can actually recover afterwards. Um, and then you can get you can get um, regrowth. So corals of animals, they produce um, sperm and eggs and those produce larvae, which can drift off and reseed areas uh, and re corals can regrow that way. So what we really need is to keep corals i mean we obviously need to do something about climate change we have to do that but we also need to keep corals as healthy as they can be for other from other um, impacts like fishing and pollution and so on so that they have that chance to regrow and to produce those offspring that can then go and drift through the seas um and and put the corals back where they they were before possibly even in new places if the water seas are warming and we and it's going to expand towards the poles possibly we're seeing that already in some places in japan and in america coral reefs are kind of popping up in in places where recently they, they weren't but because the water seas are warming up that's happening um so it's a little bit more complicated than just plants but i guess uh, you know in a similar way if you if we keep the seas as healthy as we can if we keep pollution at bay as much as we can then there is a good chance that 
stuff will grow back um and it's not hopefully all all lost because these things are incredibly beautiful and and, and they so many other species rely on coral reefs too they only cover a quarter of the um, oceans but they contain about um sorry they cover one percent of the oceans and, and contain a quarter uh, of all the ocean species so they're immensely important Thank you very much. It's probably just worth saying as well that it's really like in a really like in a in a forest you could grow a tree seedling somewhere else and then go and plant some tree seedlings. And corals are really complicated and getting corals to reproduce is artificially is really really hard. So we don't have the equivalent of a nursery on land where we can grow some baby plant them in the environment because it just doesn't work because it's too complicated and that does make it a bit harder. But makes People it fascinating trying. to study. People, People are trying, trying. to it's also just in this the scale of it is massive the idea of trying to replant the barrier reef you know 200 uh kilometers long i mean just it, ridiculously enormous um size no it's bigger than that but um yeah so i don't think we can rely on replanting as a way we really have to kind of let the corals make themselves better as well i think that that's going to hopefully be a better solution in the long run hopefully uh, Helen S. That is so. The the structure you're holding there, that a physical thing which has been built by the action of the coral, the 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 animal. Um, will other corals come back in and live within the same place, or do they have to build their own structure? Um, most most corals will need to build their own structure. I mean, other things will come and colonize dead corals, most likely seaweeds, actually. They'll get smothered over by um, by seaweeds that will come along, depending on if there's fish around to eat them. But no, um, each um, coral builds its own colony and then sort of splits itself off by budding and creates okay. different things. You get solitary corals that are just one big um, animal, a polyp, we call it. Um, others, like the branching ones, will get uh, massive ones called brain corals, which are just a boulder, basically, with a thin veneer of life on the outside. Um, but as far as I'm aware, I mean, I mean, a co I suppose corals could probably come and land on a, an old boulder coral and start growing again. But I don't think they'd sort of they wouldn't move into these little these little holes, basically. No. Uh, now a question. We mentioned Gliss Gliss at the beginning and uh, Leanne wants to know more because we talked about Gliss Gliss also here when you were on Book Shambles a while ago and a lot of people have uh, have never heard of uh, Gliss Gliss. Uh, Leanne says, I've lived in the UK all of my life, never heard of such a thing, let alone seen one. Of course, actually, you're unlikely to to uh, uh, see them. Um, are they endangered? Are they some sort of mammalian secret? More Gliss Gliss news, please. So Gliss Gliss. Um, and they're actually uh, an alien species. I mean, they're, they're not one of our native species. And in some instances, they're quite a pest. Um, they will take up residence inside people's houses and they will nibble and gnaw at things such as electric cables, uh, um, old photograph albums and insulation. Um, so there is a problem because they're also you know, very endangered. Uh, and um, yeah, they, they there's a whole habit you know, called the edible dormouse because people did used to eat them. In fact, there was a whole uh, there's a Roman a Latin word, the glissaria, uh, actually a thing you, you would keep your gliss gliss in um, to, to fatten them up before you, you then cart them off to the to the kitchens. So, no, I mean, they're one of I mean, th there aren't that many mammals in this country, um, and, but they're one of the they're very there aren't that many of them themselves of gliss gliss. Uh, they are mostly in the sort of south uh, in, in the Downs areas, those sort of Sussex area, uh, the band of them around around there and moving up to the Chilterns, if I remember rightly. Um, but I have I could point you to the direction, uh, direction of Dr. Pat Morris, who knows an awful lot more about uh, uh, the dormice of this world. But yes, spend some time digging around in, in those books of the mammals of this country and you'll find some wonderful things. Uh, they look furry, they look cuddly, but probably don't uh, because they've also got quite sharp teeth. Yeah, they are very interesting. Have a look. And Pat Morris, you're right, is 
great on on the subject and they are they 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 sound terrifying as well if you do happen to get them between the floorboards they don't just sound sound like a mouse scuttling around they're not that much bigger than a mouse yeah they are a little bit bigger but they sound enormous it actually sounds like you've got kind of rabid beavers in the house uh, as as i found out when i was uh, doing some work in my dad's place um now i'm going to i don't know if i'm going to ask this question directly or, or say it, i'd go to another one but just warn you all because the next one's from magpie and it's what is the strangest animal behavior you know about so what i'm going to do is i'm going to move on to the next question but then come back to that to give you a little chance to think about this uh this is from diff mike who would like to know i understand most of the science behind a rainbow and that when there's a second one uh the colors are reversed how can you theoretically get on top of the other so this is now so double rainbows. We're talking about a double rainbow scenario That's on here. Top it. Yeah, I'm not in touch. So is, is that about? I'm trying to think about the way that the the movement of the sun, the rain. So that I, the way it works is if you see a rainbow, the sun is sun is always directly. But if you look straight at the middle of the rainbow, the sun is always directly behind you. And what you are <laughs> actually seeing is your own personal rainbow. If you imagine a line that comes from the sun right through your head. Um, there's an arc 42 degrees away from that line and you see a circle. So if you you and the person next to you do not see the same, you have to be at the centre of your own circle. And, and the way rainbows are formed is that uh, you get tiny uh, droplets. So for a rainbow, they do have to be spherical droplets. And um, the sun is either bounced once or twice inside the droplet before it comes back at you. And if it bounces once, the colours spread out in a way to get the, the rainbow we're used to. And if it bounces twice, the colors are all, all reversed. So, so that's the rainbow. I'm not sure about the on top of it, but it also means that you'll never find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because um, you're, the problem is the end of the rainbow moves with you. So the, the goalposts are literally moving. <laughs> so you take your rainbow with you, um, but you won't ever get to the end of it. In fact, if you're high enough up, you can see a hole. If you were on top of a very pointy mountain and the sun was high behind you, you, you could theoretically see a hole. Um, it's just that you can't see the bits that are below. But I'm not quite sure about the bit in the question about getting on top. I'm not sure about the double rainbow. The kind of, I've got to say, if anyone lives down or nearby in in devon that is a great place to i've I, well, I was down there a, quite a few months ago now but it, it's it's one of those ones where the hill opposite dartmouth just across the river just across the river dart is perfect for actually getting because quite often you see most of a rainbow don't you and then it kind of fades towards an edge but that is the perfect one to go and see the televisual kind of you know the 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 jeffrey bungland zippy rainbow we were brought up in animation as as kids um if you want to ask that question again because i might have just i might have put all of the stresses in the wrong place which has made it more confusing so we can come back to that one next week if you'd like to to hear more about that sense of the double rainbow and exactly the the intention behind the question um rosie I, i've got a live question from oh great ellen s if we've got yeah uh, yeah you're know, you not getting the live one so for karen uh while we were on air uh, has asked, um, this is for Helen S. Uh, she said, as a young child, she had a book about the deep ocean and she was really scared by the picture of the anglerfish. Um, and can you explain how their light works and how they turn it on and off? Ah, br ah brilliant. Yes, anglerfish. There's lots and lots of species of these brilliant uh, deep water fish. I guess they're mostly in the midnight zone 
and deeper, so deep than about a thousand meters. And uh, and they're famous for these big, scary mouths. Um, but that's important when you're in the deep because there's not that much around to eat. So you pretty much have to shove in anything you find. So your mouth needs to be as big as possible so that you can physically get it into your body. Um, but they have these lures, um, some of them, most of them sticking out sort of a, a prong on the top of their head. Some have um, glowing beards as well, <clears throat> sticking down. Um, so a lot of them have bacteria living in, uh, in those uh, little bulbs at the end of this thing, prong sticking out the top of their heads, which are bioluminescent. They have these chemicals, they have genes that produce two kinds of molecules that when they combine, uh, perform, uh, um, carry out a chemical reaction that releases light. Um, so I think those ones are basically, uh, if you've got a bacterial form of bioluminescence, the only way to control that light, because they glow all the time, is to have some kind of shutter to kind of close them on and off. And I don't think anglerfish do that, possibly. I think it might just have to have a, a constant glow. There are other fish that have um, shut, sort of shutters and they can wink in the dark, like lanternfish can actually kind of close their cl close the lights off, like a sort of like the headlights on a car almost. Um, but then there are some anglerfish that have not only a bacterial um, glow uh, coming out the top, but they'll have um, a different kind of uh, bioluminescence in that beard at the bottom, and they have their own genes to make those chemicals. So they kind of have this more kind of inherent uh, ability to produce the light, so then they can control when the light goes on and off. So you actually get in some fish kind of these sort of du dual um, bioluminescence in one animal, which is pretty amazing. So they've evolved it kind of twice, but in, in one species. Um, and we think it's all probably about attracting food. So having a kind of flashing light for those animals is probably that other smaller fish might be like, hmm, what's this? And come along and look at it. And um, then they get, yeah, turn into the anglerfish's dinner. So that's that's how. Others, Helen, that have come through? Uh, yes, there is another one from Caroline. Um, and Caroline wants to know, is there, a, is there a best bit of the garden for putting a hedgehog feeding station? And perhaps you could tell us what a hedgehog feeding station is while you're at it. I Okay, so hedgehog feeding station. The thing about feeding hedgehogs is you're putting out food, which is the favourite food of foxes, cats, dogs, um, the birds in the morning, um, all those sorts of things, and, and rats. And so you want to try and put the food out in such a way that the hedgehogs will eat it, but the other animals will leave it alone. And so if, if you search online, you can find all sorts of amazing designs, really clever designs, because what people have discovered is that many cats are essentially fluid. And so that whilst you may think you've created enough of a, a maze to be able to try and get let the hedgehog snuffle through to the food, the, the cat sort of extends itself around like a snake to get to the food. But essentially the point is you upturn box, brick on top of it, partition into the box, 13 centimetre hole so that hedgehog goes in, comes around a corner, comes back again and feeds in the corner near the entrance, but with a partition. This also tends to stop rats feeding on it because uh, rats don't like being caught in a corner whilst they're feeding. Best place to put in the garden depends on the purpose of your doing it. If you're doing it out of the goodness of your own heart because you just want to feed hedgehogs, put it down the back of your garden. Um, but if you want to do it such that you have an increased chance of seeing hedgehogs, put it somewhere closer. I don't think it's going to make a massive difference to what the hedgehogs will do, uh, but they will be uh, are forever thankful for you putting out meaty pet food and apparently uh, kitten kibble. Meaty kitten kibble is the favourite thing at the moment for hedgehogs. They go through phases. Now, here's the question then. What is the strangest animal behaviour you know about? Helen S, let's start with you. Let's start with you. Well, I mean, I could choose almost anything in the deep ocean, but I'm, I, I know we talked about it last time, but I think I have to go with Yeti crabs. 
these um, deep sea crabs that grow bacteria in their hairy arms and then eat them. And it's not any bacteria, it's weird chemosynthetic bacteria that don't need sunlight to grow, but use chemicals to produce food. So they're the, this completely alternative form of life that we had no idea about until hydrothermal vents black smokers were found uh, in the 1970s. And these guys were discovered much more recently. Um, yeah, and they, they do look a bit like yetis. They've got these amazing kind of blonde furry arms and they, um, they wave their arms in the chemicals in the water so they can grow these bacteria. And there's another species which um, has hair on its chest I think I showed you that last time, the Hoff crab, named after David Hasselhoff, um, <laughs> um, because he had a hairy chest, I guess, as well, when he was uh, in Baywatch. Um, and again, those bacteria kind of, they farm bacteria on their bodies and then sort of scrape them up and, and eat, eat them. There you go. Um, well, I, I, I'm i not actually going to pick an ocean one, which I feel a bit bad about, but I, I went uh, with some friends to a city farm yesterday and there were rabbits and we had the conversation about rabbits eating their dinner twice. twice. And so I think I think it's just very it's only weird because it's very clever and sensible, but it shows how weird we are because we think it's weird. So what rabbits do is they nibble on grass, which has a lot of cellulose, isn't too great on, you know, it's quite dilute in other nutrients. So they nibble down all the grass and the cellulose and that's all fine. But then inside the rabbit, there's a sort of sorting process and all the, the cellulose that they can't digest, that carries on down the digestive tract and all the stuff that might be useful gets kind of, uh, diverted off to one side to a special little organ inside the rabbit and so the other stuff carries on down that's rabbit poo that's fine the stuff that's gone into the special little thing gets partially dealt with but then the rabbit still needs to get it back into its digestive system so it can eat it properly so it basically poos it out the same orifice and then eats it straight out of that orifice so it can go back down to have it properly so rabbits tend to do this at night and uh, which is why you may not have seen a rabbit doing this. But if you see, if you happen to be out at dusk and you see a rabbit eating, looks looks like it's eating from somewhere below its tummy, it's having its second dinner. Hey, Hugh W. <laughs> um, I, 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 hard to top the uh, autophagy thing. Um, it's, it's, uh, you did it so well. It was almost like Blue Peter level. I, I really like that. That was all of the nice words you used in it, um, eating your dinner twice. Um, I was <laughs> going to talk about something which was slightly ruder, but I won't. So I'll talk about self-anointing in hedgehogs uh, just because it's, it seems like it's the most obviously you can explain it quite easily. But occasionally you will come across a hedgehog which will build up a froth of saliva on its mouth and then it will contort its body and with a very well, remarkable long tongue spread the saliva across its spines and so the immediate thing well this must be something to do with with scent or whatever but some hedgehogs uh, are stimulated to do it because they've come across something new as a flavor uh, um, if you've washed your hands with uh, you know, scented soap and you pick up a hedgehog they will that could stimulate them to do it other people have seen it because they've been chewing on cigar stubs or whatever yeah really strong flavors generate this but other hedgehogs have been stimulated to do it with distilled water so there's no clear link with that and uh, so we don't actually know what it's about possibly spread of some pheromones but what it can be about is really 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 annoying me as a photographer when I've got a tv crew there with a rescue hedgehog and we're launching a big hedgehog project and we've got a hedgehog out on the lawn and it's a rescued one it's going to be released into the wild and um, and we put out on the lawn the tv crew's there they're filming it I'm taking photographs and it wanders across the lawn and finds chicken poo and it chews on the chicken poo and starts self-anointing, lathering itself in just masticated chicken shit and um, and then making it a really unlovely looking sort of animal to then pick up and do your piece to camera with. Uh, so, yeah, we're not entirely sure what stimulates it other than just a, a chance to irritate me. 
We saw how uh, Helen Chersky shows how you can get your part in the audition of a Blue Peter uh, job, and he's shown how you will not get a second call uh, there. Um, we, we're going to end on, we've got a, a question about the environment, and I was just briefly going to mention something uh, because of that, which is some of you might know, uh, many of you probably won't, but a, 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 about a month and a half ago, I decided to, to pull out of doing an event at the Science Museum over some of their involvement uh, with fossil fuel companies, and uh, in the last couple of weeks, there's been an announcement that their their climate change exhibition is actually going to be sponsored by Shell, um, which is something that I'm kind of troubled by, uh, but I don't know very much. I mean, this is always the problem when you, you make decisions of these things is trying to do some research. But I would I just want to recommend because it is one of my favourite museums and because I do find um, and because this exhibition is opening very soon, have a look at Culture Unstained online, uh, which has done a lot of campaigning about the the for instance you know the National Theatre Art Galleries etc. And, and there and and then go to lots of other places as well do lots of research but it's just i just wanted to mention that as we could moving on to something environmental that is something that i find troubling and uh and i think it's worth having especially because something like the science museum if it appears they're giving a seal of approval to fossil fuel companies like oh if the science museum says they're okay they must be doing really great work and we should just leave them alone that's my position on it anyway um Rose's question is, uh, how can we get people to connect with the deep sea and how it affects above ground issues more? I've always felt that pollution seems like an easy thing to fight because people can see it. They can see the summer's getting warmer and warmer. But how do we connect to a wider conservation message concerning the deep oceans? Helen S, can I start with you on that? such a good question. I mean, the oceans as a whole have this problem of being out of sight and out of mind that most uh, most of us don't get to see what's down there. And the deep sea is the kind of the ultimate part of that. But now there is so many ways to kind of know more about the deep. So, um, you know, we have fantastic uh, films. We have fantastic link ups with scientists. So you can now watch live expeditions as they're happening. Um, you know, they have these incredible um, deep diving robots with um, high definition cameras that are basically doing their research and looking and, and, and doing science in the bottom of the sea miles down beneath the waves but they're pinging images directly up to the ship and it's going onto youtube and onto the internet you can watch it you can basically be kind of an armchair explorer um but i mean i guess just in any way you can um teach yourself learn about the deep sea i hate to say it but you know if you do want to know more there is a book um which also is full of resources for you to go and find other things but we have got more eyes in the deep than we ever have before more scientists looking more amazing technologies to see what's in the deep and crucially your point um about why it matters and um, finding those connections between these ecosystems and these places and these physical parts of this enormous space on our planet and stuff that we know about and that we are amongst uh, up here on land and in the shallower seas. There are so many connections, biochemical connections, chemistry, biology is moving around all the time. Heat's going into the deep sea, carbon's going into the deep sea. It's all so important. Um, but we're learning more and more about that as well at the same time. So um, I think there's never been a better time to connect yourself to the deep. And there's lots of ways of doing that. Watch Octonauts. I'm sure there's plenty of amazing deep sea episodes in that as well. So yeah, just go out and find it. It's all, it's all out there. Um, yeah, so I think actually the real solution to this problem is, to, is, a, is, a, is a change of perspective. And I think what we actually need is to be much better at seeing ourselves as part of a system and not separate to it. Because all, all of it, I mean, as Helen said, there's all these logical reasons, heat and carbon and lots of like the ocean is an engine. That's what my next book's about. Um, but the really the the thing the hu the thing that humans need is to have some humility and to see ourselves instead of something that sits on top of nature as a part of a much larger system. It's like the overview effect that an astronaut would have, you know, this famous 
the fact that when you look down on the tiny ball of earth in space um, and, and you see how small you are, actually you're part of that system. Every time you eat, every time you use anything, every time you move something around, you are just part of an engine and you can choose how to be part of that engine, right? And I think it's that shift in perspective. Nothing is really going to change until we start seeing ourselves um, and enjoying being part of that system because suddenly then when you have a plastic bottle, you're saying, well, this is going to go somewhere in my system. Well, it's not, there is no away. Away does not exist. Um, away is just another way of saying somewhere in the system that I can't see right now, but it's still in my system. And so I think that's the perspective, that's the only, that, that's, unless we manage that, none of the rest of it is actually, will make any difference whatsoever. I'm, I'm starting to, like, it's shift in opinion about what it means to be human and that we are part of a system and we can choose how to be part of that system and that everything we touch is just it plugs into or takes from somewhere else in the system and and once you once you once that comes across and i think it's it's creeping around the edges a bit it's not here yet then it's different because then it's not like you know um it's not like these sort of the documentaries where you see a beautiful animal from a long way away and it's over there and you're over here and you're sort of you know there's this reverence for the animal it's about that you're part of the same system it's not over there it's not somewhere special it's part of us and and then and then people might do something about it so i think it's to do with the framework for everything like it's the whole problem um yeah much bigger thank you very much we've run out uh, I mentioned again, obviously, you've seen The Brilliant Abyss there uh, by uh, Helen Scales, uh, Storm in a Teacup by Helen Chersky, The Hedgehog Book and uh, Soon the Beaver Book. Yes. Um, so Helen and I both have Ocean podcasts so that's great because it means there are lots of ocean podcasts in the world but i think um helen's is called catch my drift and mine is ocean matters and they're sort of done in different things for different people but if you're keen on on sea ocean things then both of those podcasts uh they're i well helen's is definitely worth a listen it's up to you to judge the one i do i'll allow hugh you're allowed an extra plug as Thank you so much. I was just going to point out that the you, you were talking about the deep of the ocean, but actually the hedgehog is is the way into all of these things because the as you talked about Helen C about the 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 remove of the external it's all too far away. It's at the bottom of the ocean. You're looking at it on a screen because it's on a podcast or you it's, it's it's too distant. You need to find the wildlife which is close at home to begin the journey of studying ecology to understand and appreciate ecology. And that's why the hedgehog trumps everything because it's the animal you actually have a chance of getting close to. You actually have an opportunity of maybe getting nose to nose with this amazing predator. And once you've taken that step of recognizing this other creature as another sentient, amazing animal, bigger than 99% of all creatures that lived on the planet, uh, yeah, this amazing animal, uh, then maybe you begin to start the journey about looking into the ecosystem itself. And then you'll take your journey onto the deep oceans. But you need to start with something which is tangible, something which is there. And the birds that flit around your bird feeder are too distant and lacking in character, really. Uh, but the hedgehog is an animal which you really have got a chance with. So, so start with the hedgehog and end with the abyssal beasties. I disagree about the character. There is a robin, and I'm not saying that due to my own kind of it, but the, uh, uh, in, in my dad's garden, which I feel is, is absolutely packed with character. Thanks very much for uh, listening, watching, etc. cetera. Uh, all of these, by the way, are still online. You can hear them in audio form or video form. We've been doing them for over a year now. Lots of different panels, including uh, astronauts and theoretical physicists and genetics, as well as uh, a load of panels that we did uh, about COVID-19, which is quite an interesting thing to go back to and see as the information built and the evidence built. Um, so 
thank you very much. If you can support us via Patreon, as I mentioned, that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, the silent running episode, which uh, Helen will be on, uh, as well as Mark Kermode, Stuart Lee, uh, Gemma Arrowsmith and Brian Cox. That will be out uh, Friday at uh, midnight and we'll have a new book shambles coming up as well. And next week's subject on Sunday at 3pm, uh, we'll be talking about various different uh, medical matters. So start sending your questions in now. Thanks to our producer, Trent Burton. If you're having a bank holiday this weekend, enjoy that part of the weekend that extra bit if you're not enjoy whatever you have thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on instagram and facebook bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network